Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. And hello, listener. Uh, if it sounds a little bit different in here, and um, that may be an, an adjustment as we kind of find our bearings here in the new home and the new studio, mm-hmm. um, it's because we're in a new studio. So we don't have like this sort of, uh, this is a smaller room than we were in before for recording, which is good, but we don't have the egg crate kind of stuff on the walls yet. We don't have really any uh, furniture in this room yet. So uh, if it sounds echoey, there you go. Uh, but the exciting news there is we're in our new home, and uh, hence the two-week, hence part of the two-week interruption, because we also, Caroline, were abroad, were we not? Yeah, it all kind of happened at the same time, didn't it, Sean? Yeah, so uh, 10 days in Italy, and we saw some Ain't It Scary-related stuff. We saw a lot. We saw the Colosseum. In Rome, we saw where Julius Caesar was murdered. Yeah, uh, at the uh, the ruins of the Theater of Pompey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we uh, we saw the Colosseum where countless uh, Christians and others were put to death over, uh, you know, slaves mostly, were put to death over the years. Tigers and such as well. Uh-huh. We saw Pompeii. We did. And that's definitely going to be covered, I would think, this summer, I think I'm going to tackle Pompeii. I've okay. always found it fascinating, and that was my one concession or, or my one request for this trip, uh, which your sister so generously planned. Is that please can we do a day trip to Pompeii? I've always wanted to go see it. Yeah, we had to, and uh, I'm so glad we did. I think everyone was glad that we did. Yeah. Um, you know what you think you're going to see is like oh the casts of the the people and those are there but uh, you also just see so much of the city that they lived in. Yeah, I like mean so it, much. It really, you know, I've been to uh, different places in Europe. I'm very fortunate, uh, especially Portugal, because my mom's family is from there and lived there for quite a long time. And you know, I guess the idea of seeing like a medieval church next to an H&M wasn't too crazy to me because I've been in Lisbon a bunch. But the just the ancient nature of everything in Rome and Pompeii was just very crazy. Like I've never seen anything man-made that old in that kind of way that really made you think about how these people lived and like, oh, this is this person's house, you know? Yeah, in Pompeii where you can still see frescoes on the walls and yeah. mosaics of people's dogs and... I mean, like, yeah, they had mosaics of their dogs and like dirty art and stuff and, it, you know, people really haven't changed and I think it it gives you a very surreal link to the past that you don't think about very much, especially with us in America. I mean, our oldest stuff is often um, cemeteries, which is why I like older cemeteries so much is because they're so historic. But we don't have a ton on that level, certainly. Yeah, but there are um, political, the equivalent of political lawn signs painted all over yeah. the walls there because there was an election coming up when everyone was buried under lava uh, rocks. Well, ash. Yeah things change and things stay the same. And that was really, really sobering to see, um, especially the the plaster casts of the the people in their last moments. And that one horse. 
and the horse. But I mean, you know, you have people kind of shielding themselves. You have people holding their children. It's just, it was very impactful. It was very, very intense. But everything in Italy was so cool. I loved everything that we saw. So much art. I mean... Lots of, Carrie, you're a big fan of grave art. We, there's lots of art generally, obviously. In right. Florence, we saw some of the most famous and beautiful Renaissance uh, works by the great masters. Uh, and that's true of the Vatican, too, which we'll talk about a little more in depth this episode. Um, but you're you're a huge aficionado of grave art, Carrie. And we saw some, we saw a lot of famous graves, a lot of famous uh, resting places. We did, and... You know, I don't think we went to a single cemetery. No. But, but there were a lot of, like, Michelangelo's buried in a church. You don't need to go to cemeteries in Italy because they're just no. sticking popes uh, under, under every every it, corner. Just loose uh, loose coffins and things like that. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were a lot of graves. No cemeteries, but a lot of graves. And it was very interesting to see how certain popes, for instance, were... Um, memorialized and and who wanted what on their tombs and things like that you know i i'm really big into like cemetery symbolism and stuff like that which is more of a colonial and victorian thing um but that was really interesting to see all of the artwork the sarcophagi that they they would have these elaborately carved coffins and things like that it's it's really insane all of the art yeah, besides all the popes, we saw uh, Michelangelo's uh, tomb. We saw... We saw Fermi, our we, old friend of the Fermi Paradox. Certainly a plaque to him. I, I couldn't tell if he was in the floor there or not. I think he was in a wall, maybe. Okay. I think he was there. So there's Enrico. Fermi was, was in there in the same uh, church. That was the Croce Church in Florence. Um, I'm probably not saying that correctly, <laughs> but uh, Galileo was there too in Machiavelli. Um we saw any number of popes. Lots of them are in boxes carved to look like themselves, which is fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw allegedly a couple of fingers and also a piece of the jaw of St. John the Baptist. Yeah, there were a lot of holy relics. I love seeing like those loose bones rattling around the, a giant golden dome of some sort. I love just going like, yeah, you see this bone? It was St. John the Baptist's. <laughs> sure. You have to take my word for it. <laughs> Why not? Okay. Uh, and speaking of uh, saints and popes and religious regalia, this episode was inspired by a combination of a Patreon request, and thank you, Kate, but also our trip to Italy, where we spent extensive time inside the Vatican around all of the grandest tributes to Catholic history. Yeah, people... um. Just just initial thoughts. People really sell the Sistine Chapel and the creation of Adam and all that. And I, they don't oversell it. I mean, they, that's... It's beautiful, it's for pretty, sure. It's pretty cool. Um, but I think it's undersold everything you walk past before you get there. is like this papal residence where every room has paintings like that on every wall yeah. by Raphael and Michelangelo. Yeah, it's it's wild. and And just hundreds and hundreds of sculptures and busts and just pieces of art in every nook and cranny you couldn't possibly really take stock of everything even in a year i feel like yeah it was pretty pretty early that uh giving to the poor thing was was discarded from the whole the whole jesus message but anyhow well sean 
I'm pretty sure we've mentioned that we both grew up Catholic, and I don't think, especially with what you just said, it's surprising to say we're both quite lapsed. And uh, either of us don't really identify still as Catholic, right? No, I know. I don't think listeners... <laughs> no. No, uh, no. No, <laughs> listeners to this podcast will um, will guess correctly that I do not uh, currently attend Mass on Sundays. Uh, yeah, lapsed Catholic. Right. And I would consider myself spiritual, but not religious. But I think growing up in the religion, even now, informs a lot of things. I mean, the concept of Catholic guilt is truly no joke, especially for us uh, Irish and Italians, who I think re- really took uh, Catholic guilt and ran with it. Yeah, it's why uh, the Spider-Man and Daredevil are my favorite Marvel superheroes. <laughs> of course. They, I can share that with them. Well, today we're going to be discussing conspiracy theories related to the Vatican specifically. Like anything else, we'll try to handle the topic with both respect and levity. It's not meant to be a critique of Catholicism or organized religion as a whole. But, uh, you know, if you want that, why would you even come to us in the first place? That's not really our bag. No, well, We're not Christopher Hitchens or whatever. Right. Well-reasoned critique isn't uh, academic critique isn't exactly our, our thing. Speak for yourself, but not religiously, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But I also think, like anything else, there really is a lot to explore here, and purposefully skipping over a relevant topic to avoid offending people um, is not really in line with what we do. And I don't think we're, you know, talking about anything offensive. We're just talking about theories people have. So we've covered plenty of uh, political conspiracy theories in the past, and I think we can all agree that for better or for worse, the Vatican has inserted itself into many areas of politics and culture for centuries now, and their impact on these areas are just as relevant as any other massively powerful body. Well, there were centuries where they were as powerful, if not more so, than any of the countries. Exactly. And uh, they had to crown <laughs> crown the kings. Mm-hmm. And when we refer to, you know, the Vatican in this episode, we're kind of going with what a lot of people refer to it as. We're, we're talking about the Holy See, which is the, the leadership of the worldwide Catholic Church, and also like the place, the Vatican, which is located in Vatican City, Rome, Italy. Very small country. Yeah, smallest. Uh, is it the smallest? I'm, I'm, I think it's smaller than Luxembourg. It has to be... Population-wise. One- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it has probably less Starbucks than almost any other country in the world. I didn't see a single one. We're not going to be ex- uh, exploring anything along the lines of anti-Catholic sentiment here, just like we wouldn't with any other religion, unless to condemn that sentiment. But we are diving deeper into a particularly powerful institution and the mysteries surrounding it. Right. So obviously a lot of the people who have led it over the years have been monsters. Yeah, just like any other institution. Right. Just like the British monarchy that we've talked about a lot, the American presidency, you know, you get the gist. Yeah, you don't let any of those uh, past misdeeds get in the way of your love for the current King Charles, Carrie. And on that note, let's begin with a wildly shortened history of what is probably the most powerful single religious establishment of all time. So, it all really starts with the story of Jesus Christ. Wow, we're really right from the beginning. (laughs) Well, 
He was crucified for, among other things, claiming to be the son of God. I think most of us, even who didn't grow up in any religion, know the general beats of this story, so we're not going to go in very deep. But the papacy, which is the office held by the Pope as head of the Catholic Church, is generally agreed to have begun with St. Peter the Apostle in 30 AD. Whose tomb we supposedly saw. How do you know it's him, right? I don't know. Like, it could be anyone, I guess. It could be no one, too. It's just a... But maybe it's a Tulpa situation. The like, the more you believe, the more, you know, it doesn't matter if it's really him. Well, that's certainly what I believe about the St. John the Baptist fingers. True. So Peter, who was one of the original 12 apostles of Jesus, had been given a special position in the burgeoning Catholic Church by Jesus himself. He was uh, the rock the church would be built on, or the person who would pastor Christ's flock after his death. Peter was the first pope, or uh, also known as Bishop of Rome, and was eventually crucified in Rome under that swell guy that we discussed a few weeks ago, Emperor Nero. Yeah, uh, suppose, yeah, by tra- according to tradition, anyway. Right. And a lot of this early stuff is according to tradition. Was he one of the upside down? Did he get crucified upside down? I think he was one of the originals of that. Uh, he was told that he would be crucified. And um, so he said, well, you're going to have to do it upside down because, like, I'm not going to be killed the exact same way as Jesus. You know, I don't deserve that much. It's pretty brutal. It's kind of of boss, though. It is, but it's intense. After Peter's death, many of the following popes are shrouded in mystery. For instance, St. Linus, who is said to have been the pope after Peter, remains pretty much a mystery, as do many of them. You know, if you are crucified upside down, I wonder if you drown on your blood and it makes the whole thing go a little faster. Or you suffocate. Faster? Yeah, maybe. Because that's the whole thing with crucifixion is you're suffocating, right? Right. Well, I mean, you, you probably pass out. People who are hanging upside down pass out after a while. I think this is a good play. Oof. The early papacy is commonly placed to have ended in the year 313 when Emperor Constantine published his Edict of Milan, granting freedom to all religions, beginning what is called the Peace in the, sh- in the Church. The Catholic Church then became the State Church of the Roman Empire in 380. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476, the legal jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome, again commonly known as the Pope, was further recognized and the Holy See was granted territory in the Duchy of Rome in 728 by King Liutprand of the Lombards and eventually gained sovereignty in 756. So that leads to the Papal States, also known as the State of the Church. And yes, everything in Catholicism has like five names, including us. We have our confirmation names. So sorry for any confusion. It's 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 like any monarchy. Everyone's going to be named the same thing. And So the Papal States are the lands controlled by the Church, the Church lands. They are primarily the Vatican and environs. Well, the Papal States were basically territories in the Italian peninsula that were under direct sovereign rule of the Pope from 756 to 1870, which was obviously an insanely long period of time. And they would remain major states of Italy until the country's unification between 1859 and 1870. Risorgimento. Mm-hmm. During this time, and even after, but we'll get to that in a bit, the church held a massive amount of influence over political and state affairs, especially any that 
affected kingdoms that were officially Catholic. We discussed a bit in our Henry VIII episode just how much sway the Pope held over monarchs and how that affected where many countries are today. The Pope saying yes or no on something was seen as the literal word of God and incontrovertible, unless, I guess, you were, I don't know, a horny king that just really wanted to marry his mistress. Um, we've talked about that guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. After Italy's unification, something called the Roman question became a factor in the Holy See's existence from 1870 to 1929. The Roman question was a dispute regarding the temporal power of the popes as rulers of a civil territory in the context of the Italian unification. So basically was questioning whether the popes had any sovereign sort of power at all post-unification and within the newly formed Italian laws. Well, because they're like, well, now this we're calling this Italy now. Yeah. This is in Italy. We would like <laughs> it not to be just the church, please. Right. There was a lot of back and forth. There were basic like house arrests of popes, questions on whether the Holy See should be moved from Rome. They don't seem to get out a whole lot. Yeah. Anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. But in 1929, the Lateran Pacts were signed between Italy's King Victor Emmanuel III and Pope Pius XI. The pacts outline agreements between the Kingdom of Italy and the Holy See that in summation recognized full sovereignty of the Holy See in the state of Vatican City, which is a landlocked independent country created within an area of about 121 acres right inside of Rome, Italy. So it's a country inside of a city. It's it's a wild situation. The Pope has a little bit more land than Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> it's true. 121 acre wood. With the pacts, Vatican City was both established and became a territory of Italy under full ownership, exclusive dominion, and sovereign authority and jurisdiction of the Holy See. So the Pope is not only the Bishop of Rome and like the head of the church, he's also the sovereign of this little country, and all of the highest state functionaries are members of the Catholic clergy. And that's pretty much where we remain today. I mean, a lot has happened since 1929 in World War II. The Holy See pursued a policy of neutrality, not quite a great look against one of the worst evils the world has ever known, but something that certainly plays a role in some of the stories we'll be talking about today. And of course, all of the legal troubles uh, that have stemmed from countless accusations of sexual abuse by some in the church leadership across the world. Most recently, in 2013, Pope Benedict XVI became the first pope to resign since 1415, with current Pope Francis taking his place a couple weeks later. Mm -hmm. All right, a short history of multiple millennia of religious development, but I think we've covered the very basics of understanding. So now what conspiracies have surrounded the Vatican in all that time? Well, I do want to take this moment to remind our listeners that they can go back to our Phantom Time episode to hear yes. about what Pope Sylvester II got up to with his buddy, Holy Roman Emperor Otto III, when they invented Charlemagne in the whole Middle Ages. <laughs> right. That's the Phantom Dark Ages episode pretty far back. Back, if I recall. Uh, yeah, let me see if I can 20 find that. 20-something, 30-something, 40-something. <laughs> I used to know all the numbers, but now it's all a blur. Well, there are many conspiracies surrounding the Vatican, 
considering just the amount of time we're talking about, but we're only going to talk about a few today. Again, they invented the Dark Ages. Well, that is a conspiracy that we have covered. But first, we begin with a guy that has a pretty badass name, Saint Malachi. Yeah. (laughs) Malachi was a 12th century Irish bishop with several miracles attributed to him, leading to him being canonized a saint in 1190. But uh, I think nowadays his big claim to fame was an alleged vision he had during his lifetime of a succession of 112 popes, leading to a final pope referred to as Peter of Rome, whose papal coronation would supposedly signal the end of the world. So like 120 total popes? What number are we on? 112. Oh, we're on 112. We'll get there. Oh, we're but on yes, the last one? We're on the last one, yeah. But this li- not even Peter. They <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> well, they're really trying. We'll get there. This list became known as the Prophecy of the Popes. Uh, Harry Potter and the Prophecy of the Popes. That now is not one of Rowling's <laughs> best. <laughs> Here's the deal with this prophecy. The actual list, which includes a series of 112 short cryptic Latin phrases allegedly predicting the popes beginning with Celestine II in 1143. Hmm, This one begins, beans, beans, the magical fruit. (laughs) It was first published in 1595 by Benedictine monk Arnold Wyon, who attributed the prophecy to Malachi, despite the saint having died hundreds of years before. It was Malachi! (laughs) It's Saint Arnold. (laughs) Thank you. At this point, the Catholic Church has no public stance on the prophecy, and many theologians think that the prophecy is a forgery, particularly because the predictions of popes is accurate in the list until about mm, 1590, uh, around when the thing was was published. Interesting. And then it starts to deviate. So he was able to correctly predict all the popes up until... The ones that had already happened. Well, including the ones that had already happened. Yeah. So the monk published in 1595 saying that it was really from hundreds of years ago. But who knows? Uh, The timing obviously makes it likely that the work was falsely attributed to Malachi and whoever authored it simply used the known facts of who had been popes since Malachi's death to fill in the first part. So it's sort of like Game of Thrones once they ran past the existing source material. Yeah, they kind of whiffed it on the rest, um, which would have required actual predictions. So that would have been more difficult. Yeah. One theory for the prophecy's possible forged creation is that it was all in service of trying to get one Cardinal Girolamo Simoncelli to be elected Pope during the 1590 conclave to replace Urban VII. So in the prophecy, the Pope following Urban, uh, which I assume was the last super correct Pope because that was right before this was published, um, this Pope after Urban... The predictions are like, and the next one will be named... The suburban. <laughs> the Pope following Urban is said to come from the old Silly, and Simoncelli was from Orvieto, which in Latin translates to old city. So basically, the theory goes it was a bit of propaganda to try and bolster Simoncelli's chances, since, like, he was prophesied to take the papacy anyway. You've got to elect him. 
But anyway, the supposed <laughs> prophecy uh, certainly ends with a bang. Pope number 112 is said to be Peter the Roman, who will pasture his sheep in many tribulations. And when these things are finished, the city of Seven Hills, a.k.a. Rome, will be destroyed and the dreadful judge will judge his people. The end. So they went with a guy who named himself Francis, who's from, I think, Argentina? Well, apparently the 111th Pope would correspond to Benedict XVI, making Francis notably not named Peter the 112th. And the one way that people try to link it is that Francis took his name from Francis of Assisi, whose dad was named Pietro. Yeah, but like he... He's, he's from South America, right? He, he's he's not even technically in Rome now. What do you mean? I mean, he's in Vatican City. Well, he's not a Roman. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. But uh, luck, yes, apparently we're in the end times. What else is new? Some think, though, that further than the possible creation of the prophecies being a conspiracy to get one guy elected Pope, the Vatican itself is actually hiding aspects of the prophecies or more of them from the public. Perhaps this is linked to the fact that the church is actually known to have hidden one prophecy from the public, but not one from Malachi. Ooh. (laughs) Back in 1917, the Virgin Mary allegedly appeared to three shepherd children in Fatima, Portugal, an event which was officially confirmed by the Vatican. I think we'll definitely cover Fatima on a future episode or maybe a mini-sode on the Patreon not least because I have a personal connection to the Portugal angle of the story, but this is kind of the gist. The Virgin Mary uh, appeared and gave the children prophecies related to the Great War, which was the, at the time, still raging World War I, and three secrets encompassing apocalyptic visions and global predictions. The first two secrets have been publicly revealed. First, the children got a vision of hell, which is pretty heavy to lay on some shepherd kids, but okay. Second, they were warned that another even worse world war would come, which, yes, did happen. And the third secret was not released to the public until 2000, when the Vatican published a text that allegedly contained the secret's contents. Again, we'll get into it more deeply another time, but the chief claim of the third secret included a vision of a pope slain at the foot of a cross. Many Catholics believe that the last vision alludes to the assassination attempt against John Paul II in 1981, but there is a good amount of ambiguity there, considering he survived. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know. Some argue that maybe the church didn't uh, didn't release the actual secret at all, or they're keeping the real one close to the chest and away from the public for whatever reason. But, um, yeah, so we, we just don't know. We don't know. It could be that they did release it, and prophecies just have like a, eh, are on the hit rate. Yeah. You know, which is generally pretty true. <laughs> yep. After the break, we'll dip our toes into a few more Vatican conspiracies, including alleged murders, financial scandals, and the very unpleasant link between the Vatican and the Nazis during and after World War II. Oh, they get into everything, those Nazis. They tend to. (laughs) 
I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Welcome back to Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. We are talking about Vatican conspiracies, conspiracy theories, Caroline, surrounding the Vatican City and the Holy See of the Catholic Church. What do you got laid on me? <laughs> well, I promised alleged murder and I will deliver alleged murder. I mean, not like myself, but via facts and speculations. Yeah, I was drawing back <laughs> in fear across the table. <laughs> this theory surrounds the mysterious death of Pope John Paul I in 1978 after just 33 days as Pope. The official explanation for JP1's untimely death was a heart attack, but conspiracy theorists believe that foul play and assassination may have played a role. Mm. Some of these beliefs step from the fact that there were indeed discrepancies in the Vatican's account of the events surrounding the Pope's death, including inaccurate statements about who had found the body, what the Pope had been reading at the time of his death, when, where, and whether an autopsy would be carried out, and so on. Just like, say, the JFK assassination, the, the messiness of the situation only prompted more accusations of conspiracy, and rightly so. So why would JP1 have been assassinated, qui bono? Well, yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I mean, there's always your just random lone nut jobs, but sure. even by the 70s, the church... The church's temporal power is really just over the church, mostly, right? Right, but don't forget that John Paul II uh, did have an attempted assassination against him in the 80s, so it's not out of the realm of possibility. But JP1 was found seemingly peacefully deceased in his bed, so who would have had access? Well, theorists bring up a few possibilities. First, it could have been due to, among other things, corruption in the Vatican Bank. The bank is the Vatican's most uh, powerful financial institution and has been associated with many an unsavory character over the years, including financial advisor Michele Sindona beginning in the late 60s. So he was involved at this time. Sindona is now known to have had clear connections to the Sicilian mafia mm. and was part of a secret and illegal lodge of Italian Freemasonry called Propaganda Do. So for what that's worth. <laughs> 
Other corrupt bank officials at the same time were the head of the bank, Bishop Paul Marcinkus, and Roberto Calvi of the Banco Ambrosiano, in which the Vatican Bank owned many, many shares. Marcinkus was indicted in Italy in 1982 as an accessory in the $3.5 billion collapse of the Banco Ambrosiano. And Calvi, who was also a member of Propaganda Do, the Freemason sect, would be found dead of a supposed suicide in London, also in 1982, just before the corruption became public. You know, the Freemasons are really just boys having a laugh in dark rooms, <laughs> but uh, we, we should definitely do an episode on them. Absolutely. Sometime. But, you know, keep in mind, um, forensic experts concluded in 2002 that Calvi had actually been murdered and it was not a suicide. Wow. Yeah. By so, Freemasons? Uh, well, that, that remains to be seen. But there's definite shady business going on here, and even a murder and cover-up already, not even involving a pope. So how does the new pope at this time, John Paul I, get involved? The theory, which was first summarized in the book In God's Name by David Yallop in 1984, purports that three archbishops, Marcinkus, along with Vilot and Cody, conspired with three mafia types— Calvi, Sindona, and another guy, Jelly, to murder John Paul I as these six men, quote, had a great deal to fear if the papacy of John Paul I should continue. All of them stood to gain in a variety of ways if John Paul I should suddenly die. All right. Where is this story on HBO? We have the young pope. We have the two popes. (laughs) We have the Borgias. We, We can't have the maid pope. Oh, yes. The mafia pope. Well, that's the thing. He wasn't a mafia pope. That's the problem. That was his problem. Yeah. According to a later book by Yallop, The Power and the Glory Inside the Dark Heart of John Paul II's Vatican, JP1 had been given a list of 121 Masons that were within church leadership. And on September 28th, the day of his death, he had advised Cardinal Secretary of State Jean-Marie Villot to instigate personnel transfers based on this information. Abbe George... So he was purging all the Masons. Yes. That's part of it. It's part of it. Abbe George de Nantes, who was a theologian and Catholic father in the traditionalist Catholic faction, spent much of his life building a case against the Vatican for the Pope's murder and wrote about John Paul I's supposed discovery of a number of Freemason priests in the Vatican, as well as a number of his proposed reforms of the church and devotion to the aforementioned Our Lady of Fatima. Uh, apparently, John Paul I had promised one of the surviving shepherd children, Sister Lucia dos Santos, that he would perform the consecration of Russia in accordance with the Fatima vision. Now, in... The consecration yeah, of Russia. Yes. In one of the visions given to the shepherd children, the Virgin Mary had apparently stated that if Russia were to be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, a period of world peace would be ushered in thereafter. So John Paul the I is promising to do this consecration. Okay, but so he's going to go to the edge of Siberia and do a prayer or something? Let him do the thing. It's fine. It's just, it's one of a lot of What's things. What's it going to hurt? I, I don't think it's the main thing. I think the main thing is that he's probably going to, uh, you know, 
see that all of these guys are corrupt, which they were, even if it had nothing to do with Freemasonry. And um, he's going to institute a bunch of reforms. God forbid this guy sprinkle holy water on a couple polar bears. (laughs) Now, of course, Abbe de Nantes did have reason to go against the Roman Catholic Church. The Vatican had subjected him to canonical sanctions, forbidding him from presiding over mass and giving sacraments due to his controversial views. But at the very least, it was his work that allowed many contemporary accounts of what happened in the days surrounding the Pope's death to be recorded. So what did happen? The classic series of events goes like this. Around 10 p.m. on the night of September 28, 1978, just 33 days after his coronation as Pope, and I don't know if that's the right word. I've, I've seen a anointment and ascension. They don't really wear a crown, per se. Yeah, but I've seen it called coronation. So his his poping. His poping. He was poped. After he got poped. Um, John Paul I learned that several young neo-fascists had fired upon a group of youths reading La Unita, which was a communist, communist newspaper outside of one of the party's offices in Rome. This is something that actually happened. Uh, one boy was killed and another was seriously wounded. Of this, the Pope told John McGee, even the young are killing each other. And that seemed to be kind of the last thing that they talked about. The Pope retired to his room to read a devotional book called The Imitation of Christ in Bed. And the next morning, John Paul I was found dead in his bed with his reading material and his bedside lamp still lit, possibly suffering a heart attack the night before. Was that like a like a sex manual? No, it was it was a devotional from medieval times, just basically written about, I, I assume, just living your life like Christ. In much. bed. Well, he was reading it in bed. Oh, I thought... It was like his nighttime reading. I thought that was part of the title. Like the like, Imitation of Christ in Bed? Yeah, like... Oh, no. Like, like how you add that in parentheses to the end of a Chinese <laughs> fortune. No. No, he read it in bed while he was going to sleep. That's why I asked if it was a sex manual. I thought you were just being cheeky. I was. Journalist and vice postulator for John Paul I's cause of canonization, Stefania Falasca, published a book in 2017 called Pope Luciani, Chronicle of a Death, in which she revealed that the Pope had complained of chest uh, pains hours before his death, but had paid no attention and ordered that his doctor not be called. However, could the Pope have actually been killed due to his promised changes to the church and knowledge of the Freemason sect? Sex, Freemason sect in church leadership and corruption in the Vatican Bank. And because he was going to sprinkle holy water on those polar bears. That's the least of it, I think. But the first place I ever heard about the whole alleged murder uh, was from a show called Conspiracy, which you can stream on Discovery Plus under the name Chasing Conspiracies. So that'll be on Max now, Carrie? eventually right now it's still on discovery plus it was a hell of a time finding it but in the episode murder at the vatican it's proposed that the so-called smiling pope which jp1 was known as he had a very sweet nice warm smile not for very long no uh he was determined to bring the church into the modern world including around one historically touchy subject birth control So he was like, condoms are cool, and he's grinning about it? Well, some claim that John Paul I was prepared to review the use of the birth control pill as part of accepted Catholic practice. This would have gone against notoriously conservative Pope Paul VI's recent teachings 
um, in which he stated that we cannot change or revise Catholic doctrine. And uh, this was attested to in his writings published in 1968. So just a decade prior. This would have been a, a big change in a 76. Big, a big change because the pill is still relatively new. And uh, with the social changes of the 60s and 70s, the church was being forced to consider adopting more liberal views on, on at least some things to avoid losing more and more members of the faith, which it has been even today. Right. And obviously all these years later, they haven't done anything on birth control. So uh, this would have been very interesting. Right. Um, so... Pope Luciani, a.k.a. John Paul I, understood this, especially when it came to the issue of the world's exploding population at the time and just skyrocketing child mortality rates. However, the old guards in the church were threatened by these proposed or possible reforms and, by extension, John Paul himself. According to the episode, the Pope had a conversation with Secretary of State Vilot, who was one of the accused uh, in the alleged murder, uh, he had a conversation with him shortly before his election, making his consideration of okaying the use of the pill in Catholic life clear. As the pill worked with the natural rhythms of human beings, the Pope felt like it was possible that he could reconcile this with previous church teachings without, you know, just completely erasing what had come before. Sure, because the current, the general Catholic prescription is just just wait till you don't think there's any eggs happening. right so this is kind of like a version of that so just like, extend oh, the window where there's no eggs kind of you know fudge it a little bit however you start with one amended teaching where do you stop many of the many in the church did and still do see the revising of any catholic doctrine as sacrilege no matter how many people in the world are dying due to say the effects of overpopulation oh it's a slippery slope it's it's a birth control pill uh, today you're you're marrying 12 dogs and cats tomorrow i mean that's exactly what a lot of people are saying and maybe not 12 dogs and cats but that kind of vibe Historian John Julius Norwich told Conspiracy that, since he made no secret of the fact he was considering amending church teachings in regards to the pill, uh, John Paul I was very quickly, very quickly made a great many enemies who not so much hated him, but were scared stiff of him, because he was going to blow this whole thing open. That's why so many people had a motive to get rid of this man and quick. This outrageous man. It's like uh, Ra Ra Rasputin. Yeah. The theory, also covered by Norwich in the program, was in the was that in the closed-off, self-governing world of the Vatican, the Pope's murder was pulled off quickly and quietly in his sleep before he became too much of a threat to church doctrine. Quote, He would have had to have been murdered by poison. Someone would have had to crept, have crept up and entered his room in the middle of the night at considerable risk of waking him up and dropping this pill or liquid or whatever it was into his water glass. Fingers are often pointed to Cardinal Villot, who may have been the only person in a high enough position of power to cover up the evidence because he was responsible for removing everything from the Pope's room. And according to another historian on the show, this process, usually very methodical, was very rushed in the case of John Paul I. Uh, this is a process that happens after a Pope dies or after just... After a Pope, like in the hours 
after a pope dies. There's like a ceremonial way in which you take all the shit out of the room? Well, I think it's just, you know, cataloging everything that he had and... You know, it's a big moment, so I guess they just want to know exactly how everything is. Well, you should bring in police investigators if you want to know exactly how everything is. Well, they don't, and they didn't allow Italian police to come in. Because they would have had to be invited. And they were like, no, we're not interested in you guys being invited. Whatever water glass the Pope may have had at his uh, bedside disappeared. There is no log of that. He's an old guy, usually brought water to bed, so... I assume that was weird. After the death... I I can confirm that's weird. (laughs) Yeah. After the death, some cardinals insisted that an autopsy be performed on the Pope in accordance with Italian law regarding any deaths from uncertain causes, because they still weren't totally sure if it was a heart attack. Nope, not in Italy, boys. Well, uh, as its own city-state, the Vatican didn't have to follow Italian law and chose not to have an autopsy performed. Yep. The Pope's body was also embalmed within a day of his death, kind of similarly to Princess Diana with um, accusations of conspiracy. And this destroyed much of any physical evidence that may have remained there if there were any. There's also the fact that initially the Vatican claimed the Pope had been found sitting up in his bed deceased by his private secretary, Father McGee. In actuality, he had been found by a nun, Sister Vincenza, Vincenza Taffarel, who John Paul I had appointed as housekeeper. Well, the only thing is I don't see who benefits from that lie. Well, it seems that this edit of the facts, and this did happen. They did lie about it initially. Uh, This was made to avoid any possible perception of unseemliness resulting from the fact that a woman had been in the papal apartments early in the morning, even if she was a nun. She was there to get, like, a towel or something, wasn't she? She she was bringing him his coffee and seeing if he was awake, pretty much. (gasps) I know. Strangely, Vincenza told French reporters the morning after the death that she had found the Pope's body in the bathroom at 4.45 a.m. and not in bed around 5.30, as was officially stated. Well, that's a little little more inglorious, I guess, being found on the can or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. It was claimed later that Vincenza was sworn to secrecy about the event by Cardinal Villot and promptly sent to a nunnery. Get thee to a nunnery. Yep. So was Pope John Paul I murdered because he was going to clean house in Vatican leadership and at the Vatican Bank, uh, removing Freemason members and all those involved in the rampant corruption that at the very least would be proven several years later? Or was he killed because he planned a series of dramatic church reforms, including a change of position on birth control? Or was it just a sad and untimely health event that cut down the newly consecrated pope just a month after his accession? Who knows? But the questions will continue, I'm willing to bet, as long as the church remains a powerful presence in the world. He probably wasn't that young, right? Popes aren't generally that young. He was an older guy. He wasn't, like, super, super old to my... I don't know, he looked he looked like he was with it still. Right, but men in their, you know... 70s. 70s whatever. die of heart attacks. Mm-hmm. That, that happens. Um, the only... It's such fertile ground for conspiracy as soon as several Freemasons are in the same place. Oh, yeah. And this was like... It, it, I couldn't really figure out the, the schematics of the whole thing, but it was illegal for them to be Freemasons or for this... Freemason sect to be involved in the bank or whatever. There's a lot of Catholic fear of Freemasonry throughout history. Mm -hmm. 
And on that note, we'll end with a particularly sordid era of Vatican history, World War II, and the relationship between Pope Pius XII and a little psychopath named Adolf Hitler. Mm. The relationship was a natural progression for the Pope, at least in some people's eyes. Before his coronation, Pius, then a cardinal named Eugenio Pacelli, served as Vatican diplomat in Germany and as Vatican Secretary of State. Supporters of Pius XII's actions argue that Pius employed diplomacy to aid the victims of the Nazis during the war by providing discreet aid to Jews and to others, saving countless lives. And they also note that Pius maintained links to the German resistance and shared intelligence with the Allies. So he's like, they they would argue he's like an Oscar Schindler. Kind of, yeah. But he never publicly condemned the genocide of the Holocaust in a sufficiently decisive way to many people, especially considering how horrific and evil it all was. And critics accuse Pius of being overly cautious and not doing enough in the face of the Holocaust and doing despicable things after the war to even possibly assist the Nazis. So people say Eugenio should have come out a little harder against the eugenics. But I'm... Yes, though. (laughs) After the Allied victory in World War II, the Nazis were forced to seek refuge outside of Europe, and many escaped to South American countries like Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. Harvard researcher Gerald Steinecker wrote a book called The Cape of Last Hope, The Flight of Nazi War Criminals Through Italy to South America, and it showed travel documents indicating that the Vatican helped the Nazis make their escape to these countries. Yeah, we watched that documentary, um, Hunters, it was called. (laughs) Okay, it was a TV show, but yes. Um, And Steinecker argued that the Vatican did this with the hope of reviving European Christianity and also the fear of the growing influence of the Soviet Union. You may have heard of these Nazi escape routes being referred to as rat lines. These rat lines were known to have been supported by some controversial members of the Catholic clergy, but uh, let's not forget America did the same, utilizing existing rat lines to move certain Nazi strategists and scientists around, ostensibly ending up with us retaining them as members of NASA and things like that. Yeah, but that was so we could use their best scientists. Why was the Vatican doing it? Because they wanted to push European Christianity and they were more afraid of the Soviet Union and communism, maybe? Okay, but what are these What are these Nazis doing for you once you get them to Argentina or whatever? I'm not quite sure what what the real get here was. Um, it's almost like, I mean, the look is, it looks like you just kind of like these some of these Nazis and yeah. you want to help them out. Mm-hmm. Ours is a little bit more justifiable in the whole, in the NASA of it all. I, I mean, and you could argue that back and forth, but they, sure. but they did some important, uh, some important stuff. Right. There's also the more than awkward fact that the Vatican made money from the Holocaust and was involved in smuggling Nazi looted art, gold, and properties stolen from Jewish families. Journalist Gerald Posner posits that Bernardino Nogara, financial advisor to the Vatican at the time, is believed to have been a Nazi spy and that Nogara instituted a scheme allowing the Vatican to invest money in Italian insurance companies that kept the assets from life insurance plans of murdered Jewish families. 
And because they were just investors in these companies and they made their money kind of in this one step removed way, they never had to repay that money. Mm-hmm. But back to Pius and Hitler. <laughs> Author David Kurtzker of The Pope at War, The Secret History of Pius XII, Mussolini and Hitler, feels that Pius was afraid, especially in the early years of the war, that Hitler would win, and so felt that he had to plan for a Europe under Nazi control, especially with Mussolini, Hitler's friend, right next door. Within weeks of his election to Pope in 1935, Hitler sent a personal envoy to Pius that would end up going back and forth between Hitler and Pius for the next two years, engaged in negotiations that no one knew about until just recently. So, was Pius a sinner or a saint? Maybe, as Kurtzger himself put it, he was neither, and both. So, Sean, what do you think of these conspiracy theories? Is there anything jumping out at you? Did you think the Pope was murdered? I actually, that's a, you made a very compelling case. I think it's obviously really hard this far removed from the event and with the facts being so tightly controlled by a small group of people right from the beginning. Um, It really reminds me of the JFK assassination, just with less moving parts. But because there's less moving parts, I'm more inclined to fill in that empty space with a murder. Mm. It just feels more like the JFK. We'll do a we'll we'll do a true. Oh my god! Multiple episodes. A true multiple episode series on the JFK assassination sometime. But I think you know that I don't um, go in for any of the theories that involve like a conspiracy to murder the president mm-hmm. because I think, I just think there would be a smoking gun. I think it'd be, it'd be a hard thing to, to keep secret, uh, you know, to keep secret, but I don't feel that with this Pope thing. I think this was a small enough group of people um, and no real authorities were ever allowed anywhere near this. Well, they were the authorities is the thing. Right. But they're not really, there's, there were no cops. I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. All, all of the government officials in the Vatican are just priests. So I've always found it very compelling. I mean, you know, Old guys die, old guys have bad hearts and pass away and, and, and in their sleep. But And on the flip side, I think just the fact that there's, again, a couple of Masons involved and that there was some tension around that in the office, as mm-hmm. it were, um, that's going to lead people to see conspiracy, whether there is one there or not. So that, you and know, one you of know, one of the guys who was possibly involved was suicided. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's that, too. Yeah, it's a pretty shady. It's a pretty shady story. Uh, I think that one's very interesting. I don't think any of this World War II stuff even fell into theory. This all just well, seems yeah, like it's a conspiracy. Stuff that it's was just happening. conspiracy. Like there was a conspiracy to help some of these guys escape. Just like I mean, America participated in that conspiracy, but you know. Right, and uh, and the Vatican did maintain a position of neutrality throughout the war because they did think, well, maybe Hitler's going to win, and then we have to we have to play ball. Still be a church. Still yeah. have to keep keep raking in all this money. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, I buy. I I thought this would actually go wilder than it did. Um. Well, I mean, there's some there's some more <laughs> there's some wild stuff, but I I thought this was the most digestible without a zillion pages of context and everything. And most of all, I wanted to talk about that alleged murder because I thought it would 
it would interest you as it interested me. Sure. Yeah. You didn't tell me Pope Sylvester invented Charlemagne or anything. Well, we already talked about that. We know that. <laughs> hey, Charlemagne. Oh, what is me, Sly? <laughs> oh, hey, Charlemagne. You're fake. You're a king now. <laughs> Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Speaking of religion, it's another installment of Take Me to Church. In an incredible story out of Gower, Missouri, the exhumed body of a nun was found to be perfectly intact despite having been buried four years ago. The nun in question is Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, OSB, who founded the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of the Apostles, in 1995. Lancaster died on May 29, 2019, at age 95, on the vigil of the Solemnity of the Ascension. About four years later, for the same vigil, the current abbess and sisters decided to move Lancaster's body to a final resting place inside their monastery chapel. It was then they said that they witnessed a possible miracle. The Benedictine sisters expected to find bones remaining in Lancaster's simple wooden coffin, especially since she had not been embalmed and the coffin itself had a crack down the middle that let in moisture and dirt for quite some time during those four years. However, Lancaster's body is still pretty intact. I mean, to my eyes, yes, she looks dead, um, but the skin's still there, and you can make out the details of her face. She was looking better than Elena did with Count von Cosell, I would say. Let me see. Oh, she looks great. This Oh, this is a living picture. <laughs> yeah, she looks dead. But? But she's there. Yeah, she's not, oh, she's not a, she doesn't even look like a mummy. No. She's just dead. She looks lacquered, though. Can I say that? I think they might have put wax on her. After they, after they, they found they her, allegedly? Her yeah. Because um, she, was, she was covered in mold, but her body hadn't decayed from the mold. Hmm. <coughs> Quote, we think she is the first African-American woman to be found incorrupt, the current abbess of the community, Mother Cecilia, told the media last week. The body was covered in a layer of mold due to the cracked coffin lid, but despite the dampness, little of the body and none of her nun's habit had disintegrated by the time disintegrated in the time that she was buried. The Catholic Church has a long-held tradition of incorruptible saints, which are those whose bodies have not decomposed after death, and more than a hundred of whom have been officially beatified or canonized. More than a hundred? 
Yep. According to Catholic tradition, incorruptibility gives witness to the truth of the res- the truth of the resurrection of the body and the life that is to come after death. It's also a sign. It's also seen as a sign of holiness, of being so good uh, and having so much grace that the corruption of the body does not occur in typical fashion. Pilgrims are already arriving to the parish to bear witness to the incorrupt body. I saw a picture of one mom holding her binky-toting daughter's hand to the corpse's bare hand, which was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But um, Again, it does seem to be covered in a layer of lacquer, at least. Well, to many, Lancaster's intact body is a symbol of hope in a dark time. Quote, there's so much chaos and darkness in the world. I think God is giving us little graces to remind us of what is to come and what's waiting for us, said one visitor, Royce Hood. For now, the Abbey will place Lancaster's body in a glass coffin for any who want to see her and pray before her. It remains to be seen whether the Vatican will comment on this alleged miracle. So far, we've just heard from the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, who said in a statement, quote, The condition of the remains of Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster was understandably, has understandably generated widespread interest and raised important questions. At the same time, it is important to protect the integrity of the mortal remains of Sister Wilhelmina to allow for a thorough investigation. Incorruptibility has been verified in the past, but it is very rare. There is a well-established process to pursue the cause for sainthood, but that has not been initiated in this case yet. Yet. So we'll see. There's definitely going to have to be some sort of investigation. In the meantime, keep your children, have your children give her a little bit of space so Wilhelmina doesn't become a symbol for potential parasitic infections. Oh, dear. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529 And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. And uh, sorry for the two-week gap in episodes here, but uh, rest assured, we will be back next week. And we're doing a little bit of a crossover, another crossover with our friends at New York Mystery Machine, Adam and Christina. So uh, listen to the New York Mystery Machine podcast this coming Monday Mm -hmm. to hear us talking about Bigfoots all over uh, New York. I was going to say the Granite State. That's not New York. The Empire State. Yeah, that's the Granite. Is that New, New Hampshire? Well, we're talking about New York. Guys, guys, don't tell Adam and Christina that, that we did this. They'll, we'll, we'll, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> uh, Bigfoot's all over the Empire State. And then next week on our show, Adam and Christina will join us here, class up this joint a little bit, <laughs> and uh, talk about Bigfoot's of, of New England. So Yeah, so go to New York Mystery Machine wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, They do a lot of the same kinds of stuff we do with a a New York twist. They're really great. So go there. Listen on Monday, this upcoming Monday, to Bigfoot in New York. And then on Thursday, our episode with them will drop uh, about Bigfoot in New England. Yeah, so uh, get into it. (laughs) Get onto it and enjoy.
And special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons joining us each and every week here. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ozzy Sean Downs, Ryan, Enrique, and Derek. Thank you, guys. We love you so very much. Um, you're the reason we came back to the United States. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, in our jobs and friends and family and stuff. Yeah, but. But, but also that, yeah. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder. All this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.